The answer is you have to do everything early. And we all know that's not possible. So we have to prioritize. And sometimes we have to prioritize pretty ruthlessly and say, okay, what are the things that are milestones that we can get funding on? And what are the things that are not fundable milestones, but that we know we're going to have to fill that gap at a later date? Welcome to MedSider, where you can learn from the brightest founders and CEOs in medical devices and health technology. Join tens of thousands of ambitious doers as we unpack the insights, tactics, and secrets behind the most successful life science startups in the world. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Harley Sorkin, co-founder of Commonplace Holdings, a venture studio that has spun out eight medtech startups, including Intershunt Technologies, the company Harley is leading today. Before Commonplace, Harley led Traco Labs, a health and nutrition ingredient manufacturer, to a successful exit. He also served as the clinical assistant professor at the University of Illinois, where he focused on translating research ideas into commercially viable applications. Here are for you the key things that we discussed in this conversation. First, you have to prioritize ruthlessly during the capital-scarce initial phases of your startup. It's a constant cycle of setting and achieving milestones that not only prove potential, but help you secure further capital so you can move on with your next goals. Second, reframing fundraising as friend raising is important. Begin cultivating these relationships before you need the capital as this process can be very time consuming. Align your funding requests with clear achievable milestones and choose the right investors for each stage of your company. Third, engage openly and frequently with a diverse range of stakeholders. Don't be afraid of people stealing your idea. It doesn't happen as often as you might think. Treat every conversation as an opportunity to learn and refine your ideas and you'll end up with a wealth of perspectives and insights. Okay, so before we jump into this episode, if you're listening to this show, I'm gonna make the assumption that you're a dedicated pro looking to learn from the best in the business. If that's the case, which I think it probably is, I've got some exciting news related to our premium memberships. First, let's talk a little bit about MedSider Playbooks, your ticket to going from zero to 100 with your company or your career. You see, our team has handpicked collections of the most insightful interviews with the brightest founders and CEOs. People like Nadim Yarid, CEO of CVRX, and Mike Carusi, a serial medtech entrepreneur and general partner at Lightstone Ventures. These proven leaders shared their strategies and tactics for running a successful startup. Whether you're looking to master capital fundraising, navigate early stage development, tackle regulatory challenges, understand reimbursement, or maybe even position your venture for a meaningful exit, MedSider Playbooks have got you covered. And the best part, all of them are available to our premium members. Get instant access to these valuable resources at medsiderradio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash premium. Okay, here's the second thing. I completely understand that fundraising can be one of the most daunting tasks for any startup, especially in today's environment. That's why we've created a meticulously curated database of investors right at your fingertips. Explore a wealth of VC funds, private equity firms, angel groups, and more, all eager to invest in medical device and health technology startups. Access to this database is a premium member exclusive, so don't miss out. But that's definitely not all. When you become a MedSider Premium member, you'll get access to every volume of MedSider Mentors, where the brightest founders and CEOs share their invaluable learnings. Plus, you'll unlock the entire archive of every MedSider interview dating back to 2010. So if you're serious about advancing your career or your startup and want to tap into this treasure trove of knowledge, it's time to consider becoming a MedSider Premium member. Visit medsiderradio.com forward slash premium to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's jump back into the interview. All right, Harley, welcome to uh, MedSider Radio. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me today. I appreciate the chance to share our story with you. Yeah, looking forward to learning a little bit more about your your journey coming out of uh, the University of Illinois, um, as well as kind of what you're building at, at Intershunt. So uh, with that said, let's start from the top. 
Um, I recorded a, a very brief bio on your background um, at the outset of this this uh, this episode, but I always like to kind of hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, right? If you can give us sort of an elevator pitch of kind of what you've been doing leading up to uh, your your current role as, as CEO of Intershot, that'd be uh, that'd be helpful. Sure. So I think of my background as, or my professional career is living at the intersection of research and commercialization. Um, so I've spent one foot in more of the academic arena or academic circles and with the other foot in the early stage startup um, arena. And so background, if I go all the way back, was introduced to entrepreneurship uh, really as an undergrad with my wife, or at the time she was my girlfriend that became fiance and wife, but we had a, a business that we had taken over from her father and grew that and um, ended up building an ingredients business that was selling things like pharmaceutical precursors and uh, dietary supplement ingredients, raw ingredients, and um, exited that and formed a new business unit for a, a large specialty chemical company. But then I got back into this area of what I'll call translational research. Um, so at the University of Illinois, I hold positions in uh, the College of Engineering and the College of Medicine, um, but I'm not an engineer and I'm not a physician. So I my objective is to take things that are developed in those research environments and bring them into a commercial environment, a real world application. Um, so that, that was kind of the academic piece. Now on the commercial piece, um, about a, a little more than a decade ago, I started a small venture group. It was kind of a venture studio model called Commonplace Holdings. Um, I started it with three partners they were all the brains behind it. They were the MD, PhDs. They had the, the technical expertise. They had all left academia to commercialize their research. So we all had the same skill set. I happened to be more the business lead and had some ideas around the financial models. And so we worked together. Um, in that process, we formed eight companies. Um, one of those is Intershunt, which is the company that I run today. Um, so a couple of years ago, Intershunt hit an inflection point and kind of took off. It needed a little more attention. I reached an agreement with my partners to jump in full time and I took leave from the university at that point in time. And so this is all I've been focused on for the past couple of years. Got it. Super helpful. And if you can um, give us an idea of, uh, of, of what, in, what like the, the technology that you're developing at, at Intershund and, and maybe explain it as if I'm a patient and you're the physician in this case, yeah, helping me understand kind of what this technology does is going to do for me. Well, great, because I, I saw every episode of ER when I was in college, so I, <laughs> I think I know how to speak like a physician, um, even though I'm not. So the the way that I'd put it is in it, it, we're, we're working on the issue of heart failure. So uh, heart failure is a condition. It's a, a slow degenerative condition. It's not somebody who's going to suddenly keel over from a, a heart attack. This is a condition where the heart gradually loses its ability to pump enough blood to the body. So the body's calling for blood, whether it's your, your organ, organs or your tissues. And so the, the heart's job is to take that oxygenated blood from the lungs and move it to the body. Well, in a failing heart, it, it can't pump fast enough to meet the body's needs, but it's still filling just as fast. So we all remember that old uh, I Love Lucy episode where they're trying to get the, the candies out of the machine and they can't keep up with it. Well, that's happening to the heart. What happens is the left atria pressurizes because it's filling too fast. And eventually that backs up to the lungs. So once that happens, these patients develop pulmonary congestion or they feel it as shortness of breath. So even though it's a heart issue, the way that it manifests is these patients can't breathe and they, that's why they end up in this, uh, um, this revolving door in the ER. So there's this new area 
of, of research and development that's happening around decompressing the left atria. And it's really based on something that occurs naturally. So if you've ever heard of a baby being born with a hole in their heart, um, actually, we all have that hole in our heart in utero because we're not breathing oxygen, but it closes after we take our first breath. Um, but what, what we realize, one of these happy accidents that occurs in nature is that it doesn't always close in every baby. And in fact, about one in five babies are born with a, a PFO or a hole in their heart. And some of those babies later in life went on to develop heart failure. And, and so it was actually over 100 years ago that there was a French physician who realized that these people who had this hole in their heart, it might have worked against them during their lifetime. But once they developed heart failure, they were less symptomatic. And the belief is that it's providing a checkoff valve for that elevated pressure in the left atria, which means the blood can keep moving from the lungs. And so you don't get that pulmonary congestion. So having said all that, there's this area of therapy that's emerging that's considered, it's, it's really exciting. It's drawing a lot of attention from all the strategics, the venture community, the clinical community. And it's called interatrial shunting, where we go and put that hole back in the heart. And the history on it was there were companies that were developing stents or fixating the tissue, you know, creating a ring of scar, scar tissue in order to maintain a durable opening. And the belief was when we, you know, physicians cross the septum on a regular basis in patients during procedures on the left side of the heart, that's how they get there is they poke a hole in the septum and those can heal shut. So the belief was you have to put a stent in there in order to hold it open. And that being the case, it makes all the sense in the world to deploy a stent or fix the tissue. Um, but our belief in, and what we love about these therapies is they do decompress the left side of the heart, but they also now put hardware in the heart that blocks access to the left side of the heart and they're fixed. So they can't ever change. Our belief was that the septal tissue, while it's subject to a healing response, it's not subject to a regrowth response. So we did a lot of work early on to say, can we do this same thing instead of by putting a stent or burning a ring of scar tissue in the heart, can we do it instead by, for lack of a better term, making a hole punch? It's, it's really that simple. We have that, we've developed a catheter that makes a hole punch in the septum and removes a small disc of tissue. And what we've learned is that that's not subject to a regrowth response. So the end result is we end up creating a pathway for that blood to, you know, for that high elevated left atrial pressure to bleed off to the right side. And by creating that pathway, we leave the septum in a completely compliant state. So it's now can respond to the hemodynamic needs of the heart. And so we don't think we're smarter than mother nature but we just create the pathway and allow the heart to tell the septum and to tell the shunt what it needs to do. Got it. Super, super helpful background. And so that, that whole punch analogy, I think is, is, is a great one. And if you're listening to this and uh, you know, that's caught your attention um, and, and uh, uh, highly encourage you to check out the, the website, intershunt.com. That's I N T E R S H U N T intershunt.com. Uh, there's a cool little video um, on, on the site that kind of, that kind of, uh, you know, sort of helps helps visualize kind of the the way Harley just described uh, the technology. Um, but Harley, you mentioned that you've um, you kind of stepped into the the CEO role full time for a few years now because because of this this milestone kind of that that the company hit and required you know some more some more dedicated focus. Give us a sense kind of for where for where you're at now. Um, I know you're 
you're based in St. Louis, but the, you know, it sounds like most of your engineers are in Minneapolis. So yeah, give us a kind of sense of, of where the company's at in, in its, in its current uh, life cycle. Yeah. So the company was started in St. Louis. So I mentioned Commonplace Holdings, which was the venture studio that I operated with a few partners. And it was one of my partners who's a, an MD PhD who really took this on to say that, you know, this is high value. And I think there's something exciting here and, and got it going. We started this with a physician who's in private practice in St. Louis. His name is Gil Vardy. Um, he's an interventional cardiologist. He's the one that had the idea that said, I don't think it's necessary to put hardware in the heart in order to deliver this therapy. And so the company, at, you know, for, for a couple of years, we actually operated it more as a program within Commonplace Holdings. And it was about 2018, 2019, when some of the initial companies started moving to Pivotal Prowl, we started seeing some really exciting pilot data that suggested this is, there's something here, and this is worth our time and attention. So when we started to build a team and realized that the company needed more resources, including the biggest one being attention, you know, we're, we're in St. Louis. St. Louis is a fantastic place to develop a therapeutics or a biologics company, but an interventional cardiac catheter device company, we simply don't have the resources, the, the material suppliers, the, the vendors, things like that, the engineers. So when we look at a map and say, okay, where can you do that? Um, you know, there's a few geographies in the U.S. that make a ton of sense. And for, you know, a physician and an entrepreneur in St. Louis, well, Minneapolis is the obvious choice. It's uh, Minneapolis uh, culturally and in every other way is basically the same as St. Louis. Um, it's just an hour plane right away. It's a, the, the Mississippi River is a little narrower and a little cleaner up there than it is down here. Otherwise, <laughs> the cities have a, an awful lot in common. So as we built a team, all the resources we needed happened to be in Minneapolis. So that's where, where we built the team out. And, uh, it, you know, with the pandemic hitting, uh, you know, realizing that we needed some of our own resources, that's when we actually moved there because we realized we had to have our own space for our engineers where we had control and we could control environments, things like that. So that was the point in time when we, we moved the company to Minneapolis. Now that was also in the preclinical phase. So it was what I'll call the late engineering phase of it, um, you know, around kind of the, the proof of concept engineering phase. Um, so in that phase, we were doing a lot of preclinical work, a lot of animal studies, some cadaver work. Uh, and it's it's really when things were were ramping up. Well, since then, we got through preclinical phase, things looked really good, um, and we moved to our first in human. So in, in early 22, we enrolled our first in human study where we did 10 patients with our procedure, and that was done in the Republic of Georgia. So we did go outside of the U.S. We considered a few geographies, and uh, based on level of care, cost, uh, the, the, the process, the, um, the oversight process, and, and probably most important in all this is that the, you know, I mentioned quality of care for the patients, but it's the follow-up quality of care. It made a lot of sense for us. And so that's where we ended up going. We had a great experience there with a great clinic and great operators to, um, you know, manage these patients. So that's, you know, where we sit today is we've just, uh, we just finished our this late this summer, finished our one year follow up on those patients and presented our results at the TCT conference last month. Got it. That's super helpful. And th those results were were based on that. You said 10 patient uh, first in human study. 
That's correct. We did 10 patients um, and happy to share some of the details. I think at a a very high level, the way that I put it is first in human study is all about safety. Can Mm -hmm. you perform your procedure effectively and is it safe on the patient? So that's the primary objective of a first in human study. And so both acutely through the procedure and then longitudinally through the one-year follow-up procedure, we didn't have any negative events, no adverse events that were reported um, and succeeded in performing the procedure in all 10 patients. But then, you know, we look at our program and the real fundamental question is if if you make this hole in the heart without fixing that tissue, is it going to heal shut? So that was, of course, a very critical objective for us. And what we saw was in all 10 patients throughout one year, all of them maintained a durable opening. And so they have um, an open shunt with left or right flow at the end of a year. And then, of course, you look at clinical outcomes just to look for some signals. And I think what was really encouraging is that not only did all of our patients respond, they continued to improve throughout a year. So we, we had remarkably consistent results among all 10 patients across every measure that we looked at. So that was really exciting to us to say, okay, you know, we've really learned a lot from those who came before us in terms of which are the right patients to select. And by selecting them and and performing our procedure without hardware, these patients not only improved, but it, it seems to suggest that the dynamic nature of the opening that we create allows these patients to continue to improve over time. And in a nutshell, the way that we look at our outcomes and why we're so excited by them. Yeah, very cool. Um, and so looking ahead, I guess before we kind of go back in time and learn a little bit more about not only your 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 journey, but really kind of uh, the, the earliest uh, sort of uh, development efforts at at Intershut, where, where 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 does the company go next? Are you currently kind of preparing for? I presume this is a class three device, right? So are you currently preparing for you know an eventual PMA here in the in the U.S. Yeah, so ultimately, we we will have to conduct a, a pivotal trial in order to get a heart failure claim for our device. So I think of the ClinReg process, uh, the clinical and regulatory process, as really three steps. So the first in humans is all about safety. Next, you go into a feasibility study or a pilot study. Really, you're looking for feasibility. Make sure that multiple operators across a broader spectrum of patients tolerate the procedure and that that it's continues to be safe and, and the, the, um, the ease of use is there, that the procedure can be performed effectively. And then you move into pivotal. So in order to generate a heart failure claim, we do expect to have to perform a, a pivotal study of our own in a heart failure population. Um, so the first in human is kind of step one. Step two is coming up next year. So we do plan to conduct an early feasibility study It'll be U.S.-based, and we uh, we hope to kick that off in the spring of next year. And so we're in the process of preparing for that. We learned a lot in that first in human study in terms of what do we need to do with the device to um, in terms of ease of use and compatibility. The the therapeutic aspects of it worked exactly as we had intended. So the the ability to make that opening in the septum that and and safely and securely do that that was great. So we're leaving all that alone, but it's all the things that you want to do to make the device look more like a, uh, a commercial device. So some of the iterations there have been conducted and we're now preparing, we're in that process of, uh, of validating those devices so that we can then go back to the FDA and ask for uh, an IDE or investigational device exemption in order to conduct an early feasibility study in the U S. Got it. Super helpful. 
Um, I think that that serves as kind of a nice, a nice baseline to sort of go back in time and maybe we'll spend the next 20, 25 minutes or so talking about, um, you know, various, various sort of functions of, of, uh, of a business that any startup kind of needs to, needs to tackle, right. Um, you know, starting from, from early, early development all the way through great clin and, you know, fundraising, of course, along the way. So with that said, you've got a, a ton of experience, right. Taking, um, sort of, you mentioned kind of this, this idea of translate translational kind of medicine, taking these ideas out of, you know, an academic institution like the University of Illinois and figuring out ways like, you know, is, is this a viable product, right? Does it solve a true need? Does it, uh, you know, can, can we effectively manufacture and commercialize this at, at, at scale, et cetera? So when you think about kind of the, the, those those very early days of any startup, right? And maybe maybe Intershot's a good example, or maybe take one of your other other uh, uh, other other companies that you've you spun out of uh, out of Commonplace Holdings. Um, what do you think are 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 the key things that any entrepreneur, CEO, founder needs to get right in those early stages? As as you know, because most of us are dealing, you know, have to work with a, a very limited amount of capital, but need to reach sort of you know certain development milestones. You know, going from you know concept to alpha to beta, et cetera. So if you have you know, a couple of things that really stand out, you know, that, that have worked either well or that you've learned from over the years. I'd love to get your take on, on this topic first. Yeah. Well, I, I, I could tell you the things that work really well, but th- those aren't the good stories, right? The good stories <laughs> are where I fell on my face and, uh, you know, that's where we really learn. I think I can maybe approach this two ways. So first is to say, okay, what do we do? Like if I'm giving the positive direction, what do we want to nail? I really think, and and really within Commonplace Holdings, one of the things that we really focused on was defining fundable milestones and working towards those. So you pointed out this idea that capital is is precious very early on, you know, and and any entrepreneur is going to hear all this great advice of, here's what you need to do, here's what you need to do early. And the answer is you have to do everything early. And we all know that's not possible. So we have to prioritize. And sometimes we have to prioritize pretty ruthlessly and say, okay, what are the things that are milestones that we can get funding on? And what are the things that are not fundable milestones? And, but that we know we're going to have to fill that gap at a later date. You know, we're basically going to accrue a debt that we're going to have to go pay back in some way. And, And I don't mean that as a debt in terms of financial debt, but, you know, if we haven't built something appropriately, say IP, for example, well, at some point, we're going to have to go back and fill that void. But in the meantime, the question is, what are the milestones that you will be able to take to somebody in order to say, here's what we've accomplished. Can I please have some more money in order to accomplish our next goals and demonstrate that you can very rigorously achieve those milestones. So it's really the this process of defining what you're going to do, telling people what you're going to do, and then go do it. And then go back and show them what you did so that you can then begin that process all over again. So, you know, I think of the early stage is this um, permission-based capital, you mm-hmm. know, where it's, you know, we need to go do our job in order to have permission to go ask for more capital. Um, so that that's kind of from the capital standpoint, that's one way that I think of it. So, you know, we it, it's it's so cliche to say this, but, um, you know, I think of capital as it's a friend raising process, not a fundraising process, because if, if by the time you start working to raise that capital um, is when you need it, then, you know, you're just going to be meeting people and it, it takes 
months, if not years, to get checks. In fact, most of my best checks to date are relationships that I started, you know, several years ago by introducing people to our program and talking about it. So, you know, it, it, that is one thing that I think is very unique to medical technology is our uh, value inflection points or our value creating milestones are unique in that we've got this very long period of development before we're ever going to have our technology see the light of day. And, you know, as opposed to like, if I had a, you know, in the traditional tech world, right, the computer-based tech world, if I build it and somebody's willing to pay me for it, you know, because I don't have a regulatory process, well, then that's success, right? So a lot of those companies get funded based upon demonstrating users and user retention and and, and run rate. Well, we're not going to have a chance for run rate for, you know, years, sometimes even longer, you know, a decade. So now we have to say, what are the milestones that we can point to and say, if I accomplish this, this adds value to the company and I can get funded based on that. So that's, uh, you know, that's how I think of it. And, and really, I think of maybe three that become really critical, or at least that stand out to me in the earliest stages. Uh, one is the team. Again, it's it's you're never going to have the complete team, but you have the one or two critical people who are uniquely qualified and have an unfair advantage that can accomplish that predefined milestone. So I think that's the most important. And you know, you're going to have to do all the things to be creative to get those people on board with you, uh, you know, and 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 make those commitments. Um, so that's one. Two is IP. So, you know, in the med tech world, like it or not, we exist based upon having intellectual property. Uh, and, and when we get acquired or take things to market, oftentimes it's based upon IP. So when in an IP standpoint, I actually, we always started with freedom to operate. We spent much more time on understanding what the landscape looked like and to make sure that we weren't going to step on somebody else's toes before we worried about building our own IP program and making sure that our solution was defensible. So that's, you know, that's kind of one of the first legs of that. So, you know, teams, one leg of the stool and IP is the next. The third that we always looked for was what is that proof of concept or that, that milestone that I was harping on so much earlier. And so it's really to say, you know, can you demonstrate that this works? It, it may be ugly, it may be crude, it may be on a bench, it may be in an animal, it may be in a model that you built, but demonstrate that you can technically do what you say you want to do. And so that's, you know, in terms of proof of concept, that kind of the third leg of the stool that, that we look for. So I, I, I realize that's, and, and I'll pause there because I've, I've kind of given one view that's, that's pretty robust there. And I, I have other ways of thinking about it that I mentioned that are based upon not where I've succeeded, but where I've failed, you know, yeah. where I've really screwed up. Yeah. No, but th those, th those three, those three uh, kind of key points that you, that you laid out, right. Like team IP, right. Whether it's, whether it's, you know, freedom to operate or, you know, something, uh, some IP around, uh, around the novelty of your technology. Uh, and then, you know, kind of getting to proof of concept. I think that's a, that's a great foundation, but just to circle back around to that, that, that phrase you used earlier, right. Permission-based funding. And I think it kind of starts to your point with, with, with friend, friend raising, right. Because you've got to be able to, um, uh, in order to go raise capital, you've got to be able to, to demonstrate sort of 
clear progress, right? And, you know, this, this slow methodical kind of um, uh, process around burning down technical risks, especially in those early days. And I love, I love that idea of kind of per- permission-based, you know, fundraising or permission-based, you know, capital, because uh, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And it's so closely tied to those earliest stages of development, right? Uh, and being able to, I, again, look for those fundable, fundable milestones, um, to, to your point. Um, you know, and and I guess that that allows us maybe to to segue a little bit. So, like, let's say you've gotten to to alpha, right? Or you're in you're you're you've got your your past sort of proof of concept, right? And you've been able to live up to these 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 expectations or these promises that you've been you've been uh, you know signaling to you know uh, potential investors or capital partners. Um, so the next step is to kind of build out. Right, or at least kind of you're, you're building out maybe in parallel this 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 ClinReg pathway, um, you know, and you you laid out earlier, right, and talking about Intershunt's uh, um, kind of process, right, from going from first in human, which is largely focused on safety, to uh, to now, you know, an EFS, what it sounds like, you know, starting next year, and then into your your PMA pivotal. When you think about just you know taking a step back and thinking about kind of mapping out the Reg Clin process, this can be daunting for for most you know medtech entrepreneurs, especially those that haven't haven't been around a lot of startups. So you know how do you typically think about um, either ma- mapping that out or creating kind of a clear roadmap, or you know uh, you know I guess the flip side of that coin is like you know, you know what what mistakes have you made right historically you know uh, in in across the kind of this this Clin Reg function that that you're now you know now they're not causing you to kind of do things a little bit differently. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadeem Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.